Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Welly Scully and Winter Meetive Operator, which I would best describe as the YC for fund managers. The Operator Cohort program is specifically focused on helping managers successfully launch by providing them with the knowledge, networks, and tools necessary to create great firms. Prior to starting Operator, Winter spent time as a fund of funds investor at Sapphire Ventures, while Welly spent time as a business development director at Ripple. In this episode, we discuss the inspiration for Operator, what the program looks to provide, and we get into a ton of detail on all things fundraising. Now let's get into this episode to hear all of that and more. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni has helped well over 100 venture firms at all sizes improve their investment decision-making by using actual, granular economic and legal data extracted from actual deal documents. By using Omni, fund managers can be much more confident in their ownership rights and economics and better serve all of their constituents. As somebody that loves working with emerging managers and understands the difficulty of scaling a firm, I'm so excited to see that Omni's solution helps firms become much more institutional through the use of real actionable data that acts as the single source of truth for their portfolios. This in turn translates to more streamlined fundraising processes as LPs can confidently assess the performance of existing portfolios. Check out their solutions at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Hey guys, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for including us, Samir. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. I'm excited to talk about what you guys are building at Operator. And before we uh, dive into uh, the model itself and how you guys think about Emerging Manager, let's get into how this all started, what inspired it. Winter, you came from the institutional uh, investing world. And in Welly, you were more on the operator side working at a fintech. But let's just start off on how you guys came together to start this. Taking a step back, you know, I think the 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 model here is similar, you know, in the ecosystem to what was happening about 20 years ago. You know, our view, like we came together in early 2019 and started talking about how emerging VCs today look a lot like tech startups 20 years ago, right? And there there wasn't a playbook on how to build a firm similar to, you know, when YC was getting started, there wasn't really a playbook for how to build, you know, a fast scaling tech company. You know, we witnessed this opaque and fragmented, you know, capital market. You know, noticed there wasn't a lot of innovation going on in this part of the market, um, and that you know the costs, you know, similar to startup costs being driven down, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. There's kind of a similar theme going on with VC firms, right? Like it was becoming easier to start a firm, and so there's more fund formation going on, and we felt like operator could be a way to organize, you know, this this part of the market. So as you mentioned, the emerging part of the market, which you know we've all covered for a long time, and uh, you know I think I always talk about the number, which is you know well over a thousand in the U.S., and it seems to be accelerating, despite being a, a really interesting year. Can you tell us a little bit about what gaps you're really looking to fill with these cohorts? And in many ways, this approximates the YC for VCs, but I'd love to hear just what does it mean to go through the program? A lot of times when you're starting your first fund, like you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so I think that's largely, you know, an, an educational problem and the cohorts, you know, help, help fill that gap. You know, the other gap is, you know, alongside of the knowledge gap is the op- operational gap. And that's kind of figuring out like what procedures and processes do you need to put in place early on 
to make sure you know you can spend more time focused on what's really going to be driving value at the fund level, which is you know sourcing and investing into to good companies. Um, and then lastly, I think you know there's kind of a, a fundraising or or network gap. You have good access. You know you're working with good companies. Um, you have a track record. Um, you know you've you've created value already at the at the portfolio level. But when you start, I think especially when you're raising your first fund, thinking about you know expanding that that network, looking for you know LPs that want to you know write larger checks into funds. Like where do you find those people? You know how do you interact with them? How do you communicate with them? I think that is like a you know a skill set that's different than what most early stage investors are used to doing, and so I think uh, that's like another g- gap we identified and are trying to fill. You you asked on Twitter recently, how do people define emerged managers? Which I thought was a great question, and I, I think it was um, Shiel who said it would be a hundred million dollars fund three. I, I think what that indicates is that. If you are out in the market and you have enough of a track record behind you where you can actually raise that meaningful amount of money, then you're probably pretty well established and you, you, you probably have figured out enough along the way that having someone on the outside help you along isn't as much of a need anymore. What, what we're really focusing on are VCs who are really talented investors. They do have a track record behind them that demonstrates clear potential but not enough of a track record that there would be an obvious bet. And they may not come from a place where they would be, uh, be considered uh, an obvious bet for LPs. So it's if you look at the first cohort um, over the summer in 2020, just to put some numbers around this, there are 18 VC firms. Those were a mix of solo and GP teams. Uh, their target AUM was between 50 and 60 million. Um, they're all experienced investors. They, they weren't spinning out of a super institutionalized firm where they would be raising a two or three hundred million dollar fund one. I, I think that's important. There's a there's a set of VCs who do have that background, as Winter was saying. They do have the operational training experience through uh, effectively apprenticeship at a larger firm. Uh, so they don't have that operational experience, and they also likely lack some combination of network. So either having gotten exposure to LPs while at their previous firm, um, or let's say brand name. And tying back this, tying this back to the YC analogy, if you look at YC, they weren't betting on serial entrepreneurs that were obvious fits into the market. They were betting on really talented, um, well, let's say people who had demonstrated real potential for starting a tech company, but didn't have that experience behind them to get started. And I think that's what we're trying to look for over here are people who have demonstrated talent, but will be considered overlooked or underestimated by a traditional LP. And as Winter was saying, you know, you look 20 years ago, seed stage tech startup investing is completely different than it is today. Back then, there was no playbook on how to start a firm the capital networks to get into business, they existed, but they're really fragmented, really opaque. You fast forward to today, it's completely different. Um, For tech startups, if you look at emerging VCs, it seems like there are a lot of similarities over there. So that's the part of the market that uh, we think has an enormous amount of potential 
and where we can add a lot of value. I totally agree with both your comments. The uh, thing that you highlight in particular, I think that bears worth a little bit more discussion is the fact that the emerging market, there is a dichotomy that exists between those that have come out of minted firms, have institutional type of track records, can raise, you know, 50, 100, 150 million versus those that have maybe operating backgrounds, perhaps angel track records, might have been an associate or principal at a firm, but don't have the institutional type of records to be able to raise large capital. For the latter group, which is the vast majority, I think it's probably 80 plus percent, even though much smaller dollar amounts, what exactly are the KPIs that you know you look to achieve for them as they go through the program? How do you help them get to the point where they're able to launch successfully, raise successfully, and build a foundation for a, a long-term and durable venture firm? I think you call them you know, minted firms. Like I think the apprenticeship that happens when you spend 10 or 15 or 20 years on an established VC's platform, like you get exposure to a lot of the things you'll need to know when you go to market with your own fund, right? And if you, it, you know, some people decide to do that, some people don't. I think for the people that decide to raise their own fund and they already have the you know, 15 years of attribution from a, a tier one VC, they, they kind of have the playbook already. Just they've gotten so much exposure to, you know, the machines that are established VCs that they don't really require a program like operator. That's where we've seen the opportunity. So it is people with, you know, operating backgrounds, or, you know, it's people like you're saying with with larger angel portfolios. Um, it can also be people that were at VC firms and have some degree of apprenticeship, but haven't gotten like all the exposure. And, you know, there's still there's still a knowledge gap there. I think, you know, what we look for is, uh, you know, signs of high potential, like, and, and that typically is like, if you have an angel track record, like, do you have a dif- differentiated strategy or thesis that's come together over the time that you've been putting together that portfolio? Um, are you starting to look at it, that portfolio, like a fund manager? Um, are you aligned you know, with operator in terms of you want to build an institutional VC firm over time? Because there are some folks that don't. They want to continue to you know, just do SPVs on a one-off basis or continue to do angel investing, which is less of a commitment than being a fund manager. So I think it's you know finding alignment first and foremost with those those folks because I think they'll be continue they'll continue to be people that invest on an ad hoc basis or do it more you know on the side, um, and and that's fine and I think um, you know additive to the to the ecosystem, but I do think there are people that are looking to become professional fund managers. And then um, I, I think, again, like there, there's this whole ecosystem you have to learn. There's this whole knowledge base you have to learn. There's all these skills around fund management that you ha- have to learn. And that's where operator sort of intersects um, in, that, in that part of the journey. I like the YC analogy for what you're doing with the uh, difference being you're serving fund managers versus YC on portfolio companies and founders. You know, a lot of the uh, founders going through YC are first-time founders, and a lot of the managers going through your program are either first-time managers or likely are very, very early in their investing careers. The difference, though, is with a company, there's more clear, tangible ways of differentiating, whether it's, you know, the market you're going after, you know, your traction, the IP, all of those things. Much more difficult as a fund manager to differentiate. 
given the business model of being an investment manager. Winter, given your background as an institutional LP, how does one go about evaluating a first-time manager with any level of confidence? Yeah, I think the differentiating point um, is a key one. I think if you take a perspective where, you know, if you're looking at an established VC firm and you're underwriting it as an institutional LP, the best LPs are going to look at individual partners um, and try to assess, you know, the track records and the differentiation, not only at like the brand or, you know, the, the entire firm, but like the partners that are part of that firm. Good LPs are tracking talent and, you know, underwriting people. Just take it from like that perspective, like following people when they leave is actually probably a pretty good um, in- investment strategy, right? People that have been creating value for a number of years, um, following those people, like they have entrenched networks, they have a track record of success, they have relationships, um, you know, with successful founders already. Um, and they're trusted in the ecosystem as being, you know, creators of value. So uh, I think LPs are going to follow them um, and, and invest into them. The other way that we look at early stage VC is, you know, if you if you don't necessarily fit that bill, right, then um, what what is specialized about your strategy? And I think this is this is a really you know key key piece. It's something that you know Chris Duvos brings up a lot, which is you know you're you're specialized, but like is that specialization defensible over time? Like, are you able to compound the success you're having now? You know, which is potentially different in the market. Um, are you able to compound that over time? And like, is there a path to actually? you know, building a brand around that, that kind of strategy you have now. Um, and I think if there's a line of sight there as an LP, I think, you know, we can get, we can get excited. I think that's driven by, um, just to give you some more examples, like I think that's driven by like, um, a really strong thesis, like where the LP can understand very clearly, like what you're going to be investing into, and they can agree or disagree with like, are those types of companies going to create value? I think it can come through a particular network, right? Like, especially like you've seen some solo GPs come out of, um, what, let's call them company ecosystems, right? I think if, if you are a well-known figure in those ecosystems and have very good deal flow from those ecosystems, I think that can be defensible in the near term. And if you, you know, invest properly and build your portfolio properly in the near term, like that can create again, just compounding effects. Um, and you can grow into, you know, I think, a successful VC over the medium to long term, starting with kind of that, that near term, you know, defensible network. So I think like you have to look at the individual use case of the VC coming to market, but there are definitely like near term things that you can define as defensible. Like, and those are the things that I think we're saying are signs of high potential, you know, where we get excited and think like, okay, even though this is just a, you know, 10 or $20 million fund, like they have something very special here. And if they execute on the strategy properly, you can actually build something that's really meaningful over time. Um, I think, again, like the, the key piece is like identifying what it is that's really the differentiator near term and then sort of medium and longer term, really understanding like how you can take advantage of that, that near term opportunity and compound it into, you know, just a, a bigger 
firm over time. Um, I, I think it has to change and evolve, but where, where we get excited initially is like understanding that, that near-term opportunity uh, at first. And the data has been fairly clear that smaller funds tend to outperform their larger counterparts on average. And most of the funds, as you mentioned, are, are much smaller in size. But I want to lean back into the first cohort itself and the experience that all of the members went through, the two of you went through. I understand you had some great speakers from an LP perspective. What is the general sentiment that you're finding from LPs? And I realize there's two type of LPs that likely are the most active participants, one being the institutionals and then the other ones being the family offices. Can you speak to what you heard during those few weeks on what are these different LP types thinking? Yeah, sure. So first, Samir, I should mention you are one of those expert speakers. <laughs> we're very grateful for your support. And um, I don't think we're giving up too much by saying you, you're one of the more uh, popular speakers, which shouldn't come to surprises anybody. Um, but thank you for that. I think something that came through and maybe adding to Winter's previous comments about just the institutional perspective is there are very different types of LPs. And they are looking for different types of things and over different time horizons. And it reminds me a little bit, just to go back for a second, at, at my previous company, it spent most of its time selling into uh, really large banks and even central banks uh, early on. And I bring that up because that's really not an area where any startup should be doing any business early on. Um, if you can land one of those partnerships, it can be pivotal for the company but it takes a really long time to do that. You really need to figure out where can you uh, essentially build a track record and show success early on with smaller customers, but also keeping an eye towards how do you evolve in the right direction where you can be a credible service provider for those really big clients. So the reason I say that is one thing that, that was clear from the program, from my perspective, is institutions do take emerging managers very seriously. It's really hard for them to do it because there's so many of them, as you were saying, you know, there are, there are hundreds, uh, if not over a thousand, that they could be paying attention to, but they can also be really attractive to their portfolio. It's just really hard for institutions to put emerging managers into their portfolio at a meaningful pace, and a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, th these tend to be more conservative institutions. They have to put more capital to work. They really have to know that they can stick around with that manager for a long time. So it's a really big decision for them to get in. That said, uh, even though institutions, they um, don't frequently add managers to their portfolio, when they do, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, so from a manager's perspective, they should be thinking, you know, two years down the line, three years to the line, down the line, how do I set myself up for success so that when I am a viable candidate for an institution, uh, there's a high probability that I'm going to be added to their portfolio. But in the near term, I, I think a, an important thing to keep in mind, we wrote about this a little bit. Um, this is actually one of our most popular uh, articles that we've been publishing for our blog. It's about what are the different motivations for LPs to invest in managers throughout their life cycle, but especially very early on. So we tried to identify a few of these different use cases. One of them, which really sticks out to me, is uh, co-investing. So if you're a small manager, meaning you have, um, uh, let's say, less than 50 million in AUM, you're going to likely have to focus on pre-seed, uh, which means that 
there's a very high probability that you're going to end up with um, allocation that far outstrips the reserves that you have to fill that allocation, uh, which may be in really great companies, in which case you could look like a really attractive co-investor to certain LPs, which are less likely to be institutions, which tend to be less active in co-investing at that earlier stage, but maybe really attractive to uh, family offices who are more likely to co-invest, to try and build up a concentrated portfolio that actually have an internal facility to help process those co-investments. Um, another one which is really interesting to me uh, as well is just the, the access story. So one pattern that's seemed increasingly clear, we've published a couple articles about this with some data to back it up, is that um, individuals who've made a lot of money from the VC world tend to be prolific LPs into emerging VCs. So when I say these individuals, I'm talking about founders and executives of VC-backed startups, the founders and executives of VC firms. So think about the, the founding general partners who've made a lot of money from the space. And as a profile of high net worth individual, just thinking intuitively, they should be a really good fit for emerging VCs because they understand, A, how much value you can generate from betting on early stage VC-backed companies. And B, they can also empathize really strongly. They get how hard it is to start a firm, how hard it is to make a firm successful, whether that firm is the startup itself, uh, like the tech company, or if it's the VC firm. So think if you're a founder GP who has a few funds behind you, a serious amount of AUM right now, it's very likely that it was really hard to do that. You get how hard it is. You can empathize with these VCs that are starting up. So you may not, as a VC or as a GP at one of these more established or emerged VCs, you may not be anchoring these managers, but you may be putting in a somewhat meaningful amount of capital into their fund. Your expectation from that is, one, what I hear a lot from VCs is paying it forward. It's goodwill helping the next generation of VCs get off, off the ground. But another part of it is commercial, which is to say... If you are an established VC with a um, larger fund, it's likely that you're investing a little bit later uh, because you have a bigger fund. You have to write bigger checks. It means you have to invest later, which also means that it's much harder for you to write smaller checks earlier on, in which case there's a great synergy with emerging VCs who may be focusing on pre-seed, can identify great companies for you, uh, where you may not need the allocation let's say, the, the pro rata allocation that the emerging VC is getting, um, because you as an established VC, you may have the market power to get that allocation yourself. But getting that information can be really valuable. A, a number of people have written about this. I, I think that to me is super interesting and I think speaks to your point, Samir, about you know, if you're an emerging VC, you are offering a service and it's really important to differentiate that service, not just in terms of strategy, but in terms of the, the type of service that you're providing. It's not just saying, hey, I'm here to absorb 20 to $50 million checks from endowments and foundations. It's really to say, I'm going to work with you, uh, LP who's looking for information about deal flow or who's looking for allocation into specific deals. That, that has been totally striking to me from uh, the first cohort in terms of just how, how VCs are startups themselves they are providing a service. The LPs are buying that service. There are a lot of different services that you can provide, and that will depend on how you structure the fund, uh, how you do your portfolio construction, 
Um, there, there's a lot of nuance there, which which I think is easy to miss if you're not looking for it. Well, these are all great points, Welly. And what it speaks to is the importance of GPs really understanding the LP archetypes, the motivations, the limitations in many cases. But it also speaks very clearly that the type of LPs that are coming into these emerging managers that don't have classic training at a big firm and a long track record are generally speaking non-institutionals, family offices, high net worth individuals, like you said, either working at firms or operators. How then does somebody go through the process of planning that fundraise? Because a lot of those high net worth individuals, LPs are hard to find. It's very difficult to understand exactly what those motivations are. Are there some hacks that people can use as frameworks, particularly those folks that don't come from the same inclusive networks that have been built in areas like Silicon Valley or New York? I would describe this a little bit as a cold start pro problem. So you may be a great investor. You may have a lot of experience in the, like the front office of a firm, but you may not have any exposure to the back office, investor relations, actually dealing with LPs. So if you're going out to raise your first fund, if you don't have friends and family that have a ton of capital to put into your fund, where do you go? Where do you start? The pattern that I've that I've observed, uh, which I think I would offer as, as advice to um, uh, to emerging managers, is to go to more established VCs. Try to find the ones that, first of all, are not competitive with you, but uh, could have that some of those synergies that I was describing before, and asking them for their direct advice, uh, specifically regarding their networks. And you can look at this through let's say, really high level, which is to say, VCs are in the business of servicing LPs. So if you're trying to figure out which LPs in the market, go to other VCs. Uh, generally speaking, I, I think that's a good way to start. And I, I think the second level down would be, you know, look at VCs that either share your strategy, but in a complementary way, meaning they may be investing later, and you'd be investing earlier, or they may not be investing in that strategy at all, but see you as see you emerging VC as a great opportunity to move into that strategy. So I'm thinking specifically of a large firm um, where a friend works, but this was a firm that was really interested in getting into crypto uh, years back. Um, they did not have, let's say they, they had a lot of enthusiasm about the crypto opportunity, but they didn't have the network. They didn't have the experience there. They could have done it in-house, but the way they went about it, which I think is really smart, really interesting, is they went to emerging VCs that were going to focus on that. Those VCs came from that background. Either they had been personal investors in crypto or they had come from the companies. Whatever the case, they knew that space well enough that they looked through the eyes of this more established VC as a credible investor. So that established VC said, look, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to put money into your fund. And I, I'm going to try and effectively use you as, as an outsourced team to uh, help educate me on the space, help me identify those deals, help me understand what a strategy would look like with several different iterations. So they did this with a few different funds. And then eventually that firm internalized the strategy. And I bring that up because in, in these two cases where the more established VC may be going after the same strategy, but later or maybe wanting to get into the strategy that you are. In both cases, there's this very there's this very complementary relationship where the more established VC isn't going to look at you as an emerging VC and say, 
hey, you're going to be stealing my customers, my LPs, and instead are being looking at you as a way to effectively improve their business. And this is another case, I think, where the emerging VC is providing a service. I think the important thing is knowing who that LP is. In in this case, it's the um, established VC or the GP of the established VC. So knowing who they are, what are they trying to do, and how can you help them do that? Another key point here is is like a lot of these people that operator is working with, they're not coming out of the blue, right? It's it's not like they're just deciding one day that they're going to raise a, a VC fund and they're net new to the ecosystem, right? Like they already have existing relationships, they've already created value and made money for other people. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to you know, a certain degree of self awareness and understanding like where you fit in the ecosystem and like what are the relevant groups so it's not only vcs that um are relatively you know recent fundraisers themselves and going to them and asking like who's in market but i think like you can affiliate with other sector groups like if you're you know specializing in a certain sector um and you're part of those groups right and there's vcs that are part of those groups um you know asking those folks as well they might know you know, relevant high net worths or corporates that are, you know, looking to move into venture capital and and can act as, you know, good leads. I think that has to be combined, like in terms of your question, Samir, around, you know, how do you plan a fundraise around the sequencing? And I think one of the things I've seen from people that are fairly effective is, you know, starting with that initial degree of self-awareness and knowing like who they should talk to initially, who they should get on board, and then kind of catalyzing and building on that momentum over time. So having the right sequencing in the fundraise, I think is crucial and something that, you know, from my experience, like a lot of first time VCs sometimes miss, where they just say, it's a pure numbers game, I need to talk with as many folks as possible. And, you know, I have this huge top of funnel, and I'm going to close on, you know, x percent of that. Um, and that's going to be my fundraise, versus, you know, a really attacking it with a plan and saying like, okay, this is who I am. This is where I sit in the ecosystem. You know, this is how I've been successful in the past. These are the people I should talk to first. If I get them on board, then like the sequencing of it makes, I think, a, a lot more sense to everyone else that's kind of coming in and being like, oh, those people are like, you know, affiliated now with your fund. That, that's great. Like, I want to be a, like part of that journey. That sounds really exciting. That's super fun. Like, let me jump on board. And so I think that's kind of missed a lot of the time where People are just, uh, they're very ambitious. They're, they're willing to put in the hard work. They're willing to you know, be shameless and reach out to as many people as possible. But I think just adding like just a little bit of layer of thoughtfulness around who you're going to engage with and when you're going to engage with that party, whether that's a high net worth, a family office, or, you know, an institutional investor can, um, can really, I think, make the process more effective fundraising. You know, it's so interesting. I find about fundraising and I do have some really specific questions for the both of you on things that you found to be effective for some of these emerging managers. But you're right, the brute force tactical way of fundraising is pretty common. And we've had people on the pod where they've talked to between 500 and thousands of LPs in a given fundraise. And, you know, it's a difficult, long grind that takes a lot of conversations and vetting and things like that. Part of this is, yes, understanding your LP archetype and understanding who to talk to. But some of the questions I often get are, you know, should we focus on an anchor first or should we just cobble as many checks together? 
Do you guys have a view on, generally speaking, should managers think about either way as a more appropriate and effective tactic to uh, getting to the first close? The anchor conversation, I mean, it, it, it's great. I think you have to be very realistic around, you know, do you have a strong enough relationship where that's a reality uh, or a potential reality? I think, you know, if, if you're a certain percentage already to your target fundraise, almost starting the fundraise, right, with, with the anchor, uh, that, that's a very, you know, compelling way to, to come, come to market and, and kick off your fundraising. I think the reality is most, most people aren't there, right, like that are raising first-time funds. I think, it, again, like it has to be case by case in terms of like where we would give advice, uh, like that, that makes sense. Like I wouldn't run after an anchor if you know like most likely you're not you're not going to get there in the next few months but if you have an existing relationship and you've already discussed this potentially with someone like i know people that are you know either leaving certain companies or they're leaving certain firms and they've they've had that discussion with other lps right like the lp says you know if you leave this particular platform i will come in and you can like you know build build the fundraise off of my brand that's attractive and if and if you have that then i think yeah, crafting a fundraise around um, an anchor strategy makes sense. Um, else, again, like I think it comes down to, you know, who's most likely who's most likely to commit early, like who's willing to take you know higher risk early, but also is that person where you're spending a lot of time with that's going to take that higher risk? Like, do they help catalyze your fundraise? Like, if you are able to use their brand or their name or or something else about like the resources that they can provide. Like, does that help sort of move the ball? And if the answer is yes, then probably spend more time with with those folks than than other folks that are just going to be, you know, checks uh, at, at the end of the day. I like the rule of thumb of looking at what you likely can close over the next few months. And if you have an anchor, of course, it's the preferred route. It probably catalyzes a lot of other LPs coming in. But absent that, the other question that generally is posed is, what should be the size of the first close as not to create negative signaling for, you know, LPs if it's too small or, you know, hey, it's we just need to get into business and start investing to show people the type of deals that, you know, we are going to execute on. What is your take, I guess, collectively and what have you heard from LPs on what is the right maybe percentage and are there pros and cons of you know, an approach where you just close a very small percentage of the fund. I used to have a different perspective on this as an institutional LP. And I think that that percentage was um, higher. Most institutional LPs are going to look at it as like, um, are you hitting your, you know, minimum viable fund size where I think like you're going to stay in business and also work on this full time. And if you're getting there uh, for a first close, then, you know, institutional LPs are going to be more attracted to it. I don't think there's many institutional LPs in this market that are willing to take more risk and be kind of first close LPs if they don't uh, have the confidence that you're going to get to your your target fund size. I think that's why most um, tend to look for funds that are you know, $50 million or, or greater from what we've seen in the market. I, I was reading a commentary recently on the just the concept of co-investing. And the way the person framed it was when you're co-investing with a prospective LP, they are underwriting the asset. They're not underwriting the manager. And I, I think that's important because if you think about first closes for a fund for a blind pool, I would be aiming to close enough where 
you can actually start investing into your strategy and adding companies to your portfolio so that LPs have assets to underwrite versus you. You have a bit more of a track record that they can buy into versus just seeing that you're building a momentum, raising a, a sufficient or closing a sufficient amount of capital to actually start demonstrating the strategy and showing momentum with, with respect to the strategy, not necessarily to the fundraise. And I think two is closing enough, but with a site where you feel confident enough that you can close a minimal viable fund size where the economics actually make sense for you. One risk is closing too little where it just doesn't generate enough revenue to pay you as a manager to run a business for a reasonable amount of time where you can bridge into the next fund and actually make a, make a career out of it. That's how I see it with respect to the size and timing of a first close and how that can impact the fundraise. And one other comment, and Samir, maybe we'll get into this, is just about the LP side. Like, I think that it's not totally fair to assume that there's like one secret or two secret that managers just don't know that they're not doing that's going to solve their problems. I think the other side of the equation on the, uh, with respect to LPs is, you know, are LPs really taking as a sophisticated view to how they underwrite managers? Are they looking at the right things? Uh, meaning, are they underwriting a manager, an emerging manager in the right way? Are they being responsible about a process? One thing I've observed is that this is still a fairly new market for them as well. Again, going back to this YC analogy, if you go back 20 years, there were people who were investing in tech startups really early and non-obvious tech startups. Some of them were very sophisticated. A lot of them weren't. They were just, you know, rolling the dice and seeing what would work. And I, I think it's fair to assume that there's a similar type of dynamic in the LP world today. And I'm, I'm talking less about endowments, foundations, funds of funds who've really focused on the strategy for a long time. They have teams, um, they have research departments. I'm thinking more about individuals, family offices who may be coming from the public markets into the private markets, or maybe coming largely from a private equity investing world going into VC much earlier, and just don't have a lot of experience over here. And Samir, you and your team are doing an amazing job of this, of building up a, a coalition of that type of investor and helping them to understand this is what the market looks like. Here's how you should think about the market. So I, I just want to say there, there, there is a lot that many emerging managers should be learning in order to build a more successful firm, both in the near term and then in the long term, thinking about... Um, what it means to build a firm that can actually attract and and be viable to an institutional LP, that is really hard. And this is where Winter had, just has a, a ton of experience and a lot of value to add. I think the challenging thing there is it may take two or three years to come along, but you have to start making that investment early. I just want to reiterate on one point there, Willie, like on what percentage do they close on? I think, Willie, you made a good point about like, where is the risk? from an LP's perspective, right? Like I'm an LP, I'm going to invest in your fund. I'm investing into a blind pool, a net new manager with a net new strategy, right? With a net new firm. Like there's just so many risks, right? Laid on top of each other. So if you can make that from like a blind pool to maybe like a blurry vision pool where you've warehoused a couple of investments, it, it's no longer, it's still hard to see, right? Like it's not a blind pool anymore, but it's like, it, like you can start to see like, oh, okay. 
you said that was your strategy. I've now seen that like you can source and actually execute on a deal there, right? Like there's proof points, like you're starting to add those to the board like that, like from what I've seen in, in the last, you know, year or two in the more, you know, active market, and especially during like COVID market, like seeing those proof points on the board, especially in COVID where it's like, okay, if you're not randomly meeting people at conferences, like, can you still source deals? Like, is that still like a, an open channel and a strong channel for, for you getting deal flow? If you can prove that early on, then my recommendation would be do that, even if it means closing on just a little bit of capital, because I do think it'll indicate to the, the folks that are going to be larger check writers that you want in your fund that are eventually going to you know, help you meet your target AUM. You're showing that the strategy is coming to life. I think as an institutional LP, like usually they're going to say, you know, if you don't hit 50%, like don't close, like wait till you have that minimum viable fund size. But I think realistically, like if you know you have really good deal flow and these companies are potentially even going to be marked up in the interim period when you're fundraising over your 12 to 24 months for your first fund, that I've seen is like a pretty effective strategy to actually, uh, again, like catalyze LP momentum in in fundraising over time. And so that looks more like maybe close on, you know, 10 to 30 percent or even warehouse deals just to get those points on the board so people can really you know, see that it's not just a PowerPoint deck, that it's, you know, a, a real strategy coming to life. I really like the term blurry vision fund. <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, I think you've coined something really new and I'm going to definitely use it, but it really relates to those second and third close LPs. But what about the tactics of getting to that first close? I mean, are you seeing anything particularly effective, whether it's giving away preferred co-investor rights, reducing things like carry, maybe even giving away GP economics? Are any of those things really viable to really get to a more sizable first close before you can get to that blurry vision component that you spoke about? Yeah, I think those are viable. Again, like I think the advice we would give as operator is like, what's that going to do to your firm in a couple of years, right? Like that might be, you know, the easier pill to swallow now, but that might be like putting yourself in a tough position, um, you know, down, down the line. So I would evaluate every one of those decisions like very carefully and seek counsel on like, you know, those decisions before before you do them. But yeah, like the tactics are giving up some of the GP, um, giving up certain rights, sometimes, you know, sending some free deal flow to folks before. um, So so again, like it's kind of, again, the blurry vision concept of they get a, a sense of like what your what your nose is. These are all like tactics that we've seen have worked to get people over the line. It does come down to there's no like clear uh, like source to describe this, but it is like LP communications, like like just the tactic of keeping people updated on the right information so they they can make a a more holistic decision, right? Like I think if you there are very few people you can meet for the first time and they're going to say like yes this is the this is a great strategy I'm going to put money behind this. I think more realistically they're not going to get on the phone with you every week. So you have to figure out like the right cadence and the right medium for or the media for like communicating with those LPs so that they have like a, a, a good view on like what what you're doing six months down the line and can actually commit during this, you know, first first fundraise. What does that look like winter in terms of the appropriate cadence and the type of communications? Is it a monthly update? Is it an invitation to an annual meeting to the extent that there's a prior fund? What are you finding that is 
resonating the best with prospective LPs and just more effective in getting people to have consistent mind share and when the time's right, they are coming in. From my perspective, I think the smarter VCs have kind of taken a blanket approach where, yeah, they feel like more active communications make sense. Like it's either a, it's like more frequent than monthly newsletter or it's a monthly update or it's inviting folks to, you know, your AGM who aren't yet in the fund. You know, those can be good. Realistically, what's actually effective is going one step further and figuring out to Welly's point, right? Like the architect of archetype of LP. And it is more work, but you know, this is kind of launching your first fund. You know, what does that specific LP want? And can you actually show them that you've listened and uh, sending them, you know, that information? So maybe that's insights into a particular market opportunity. Maybe it's co-investments to Welly's point. Maybe it's something else. It's not that much more work, but where I've seen people be very effective, um, and this is even in the case of like the operator ecosystem where folks have been able to secure institutional anchors is like they just kind of cater to, you know, what they've heard from a specific LP, like a larger check writer. That little bit of extra work has gone like a long, a long way in some of these cases. Yeah, I would just add or echo what Winter said about understanding who's the LP that should fit into your fund, understanding what they're looking for and speaking to that. Four or five weeks ago, or recently, we did an interview of one of the um, investment managers at Vencap, which is a large UK-based fund of funds. And he shared his perspective on what he's looking for in terms of take, staying in touch. And what he shared, broadly speaking, was his job is to make a business case for investing in your fund. It may not happen right away. Even if it's two or three years down the road, he will end up having to collect data about you and your performance over that period of time. So he was saying, what I would want to see is, it's nice to hear somebody say happy holidays, we're all human. But with respect to forming a business case, it's really showing that you're actually making progress towards that strategy and it's working. Showing proof points that it's actually working, I think, is key. One, One piece of advice that I would give to managers is think about your relationship to these LPs a little bit like a founder's relationship to you who's trying to raise money and think if you need to make a business case to make that investment, what are the things that you would need? How would you like to get that information? Assuming that it's not going to happen over the course of a couple of weeks, but maybe happen over the course of a few months. And try, try, try and put yourself in the shoes of someone who is selling something and think about what the buyer is looking for in terms of cadence, the type of information. Um, there are a lot of parallels here, which I, I often hear from LPs, their, their frustration. They say, for example, VCs have a very high bar for startups to be very clear about their proposition, the market they're playing in, their differentiation. But it doesn't seem like VCs hold themselves up to the same standard when they're communicating their own strategy, their own proposition, where they fit in the market landscape as it relates to LPs. Putting yourself in that mindset is uh, maybe a little bit too high level, but I think is, um, uh, is good general advice. And then with respect to specific cadence, specific type of content, generally speaking, it's about building business case, but it's really going to depend on who is building that business case. Is it a fund of funds? Is it an endowment? Um, is it a high net worth individual? It depends, as Winter was saying, and you said Samir on the, the archetype. I think that is really important advice. And 
not only thinking about who your end customer is, at least on the supply side of capital and looking at the LPs and understanding the type of LPs that are likely going to best fit with your model, understanding their positions. And I like the idea of putting yourself in the shoes of the buyer to really you know, guide some of these things of cadence and how you communicate. And I do think that it still probably means that fundraising continues to be a grind for most people. But you know, using those techniques, I have found to truncate the time to fundraise you know, as much as possible in the market that we're in. Lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. You guys are doing such a great job in really building and unlocking some of the black box elements of running a firm. Really looking forward to the future of Operator. And for those that are listening, check out Operator's Substack account. Great information and data on all parts of running a firm. And so again, guys, uh, thanks again for being on. This was fun. Thanks, Samir. Thanks, Samir. You've been great. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Winter, Welly, and Operator, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on this show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.